This episode of the Keenan Yoga Podcast is sponsored by Moments. This is the booking system that we've been using for the last year and we really highly recommend it. It's a great for solo teachers right up to studios with multiple sites. It really covers all bases for all people. Moments is a one-stop shop really, integrates with Zoom and allows you to take payments via PayPal and Stripe. Literally takes care of everything, the whole business side for you so you're free to focus on the creative stuff. You can set up classes, workshops, retreats, appointments, courses, and these can be online, in person, or hybrid. Customers will automatically receive Zoom links as well to all sign-up classes. You can set up memberships and subscriptions, create an online video library, on on on-demand video library, and it's easy to use. It's really easy to use as an interface. Best of all, if you have any trouble, it offers real online support moments offers real online support via phone, live chat and email. They're there all the time. Moments is offering Keon Yoga listeners and viewers a two-month free trial. Either click on the link to the description below or visit moments.com. That's moments.com. And book a demo quoting Keon Yoga to get your free trial. Now on to the episode. Today's guest on the Keon Yoga podcast is Damien DeBastier. Damien runs a yoga center called Ubuntu here in Changu, Bali. He's been practicing and studying for over 30 years now. He grew up in France, as I mentioned, and was introduced when his visiting American uncle showed him the primary series. And that was while he was still a teenager, actually. So shortly afterwards, in his early 20s, after studying a degree in psychology, he moved to, he didn't move to Mysore, <laughs> he went to Mysore a few times. And uh, he learned and practiced, and then came back and assisted his uncle in the US, actually, in California. And he did that for a number of years. Recently, more recently, in the last 10 years, he's made Bali his home. And he's been teaching and running retreats, etc. here for all those years now, as well as teaching in Europe. I found Damien's approach a really informed, whilst incredibly down-to-earth and accessible one. I hope you enjoyed my first live chat as much as I did. And you can find Damien at www.ubuntubali.com or on Instagram at ubuntu underscore Bali. Anyway... Welcome to the Keenan Yoga Podcast, Damien. So with me today is Damien de Bastia, um, long-term Ashtanga teacher and Frenchman. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, good, good. Um, I suppose we start the normal place of um, let, let us know a little bit about your story. Uh, how did you get into Ashtanga? Um, okay. And, yeah, a bit about your background. All right. Um, so actually, I started with meditation when I was about 15. Right. Yeah. And I was a bit traveled as a youngster teenager and so that helped me a lot and I was reading a lot of spiritual texts and uh, meditating an hour two hours a day Um, and when I was in college studying psychology my uncle who was my meditation teacher uh, he's from the US Washington DC started doing Ashtanga introduced me to Ashtanga and from my backgrounds in meditation and sports athletic it felt like wow this is it mm, mm. Uh, love at first stretch I call it. <laughs> so what what athletics were you doing i was at the time i was doing triathlons right right yeah. and did you keep up the meditation as you as you progressed with the Ashtanga, or did you kind of ditch the meditation for Ashtanga? Um, kind of... no i definitely had a big love affair with Ashtanga, and eventually kind of like Reincorporated right. meditation yeah, down yeah. the line, along with pranayama and all the other sides. Right. Of, of you started it pretty young. You, you kind of 
in college years, so you must have been around 20. When you yeah, started, 24 yeah. when okay. I started right, Shanghai. Right, 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 yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that was in Washington or in France? Uh, well, he, yeah, I got introduced in France and he brought me a poster. At the time, it was Dharma Mitra, which is not Ashtanga. Right. And I was just playing along with the postures. Um, and then he sent me a video, actual video tape right. uh, of Richard Freeman. Right. And then I was like, wow. So I was trying to do whatever Richard Freeman was doing on the videotape, yeah. uh, like flying from from the sun salutation into handstand and lotus and folding down right. blah, blah, blah. and then eventually i went there to dc and by that time he had opened an ashtanga yoga center in dc mm. and after a few months he was like okay now go to india when went straight to mysore right so yeah. essentially that was your your primary teacher was patabi joyce then yeah right yeah, yeah your yeah. uncle taught you a little bit and then you went straight to mysore yeah right yeah and that, at 24 or 25 yeah exactly right so yeah. what, what year was that 90 i went to mysore the first time in 99 99 yeah okay and uh and then i went back to dc after that and my uncle was like great now you can help me teach which right. i thought was a completely crazy idea but his argument was like look you've been meditating for 10 years you went to india you you know you'll be fine and then in the end that's how it kind of started it pushed me right. pushed me into that how did yeah. you find mysore at the time when you went to mysore i suppose you went to the old yeah. And Lakshmi Pura, I mean, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Some. It was my first time in India. It was very strong experience. First time in a developing country, and uh, so it was quite a reality check, which was difficult, but also very beautiful in that way. To realize that you know how we live in the West or in Europe is a is a minority compared to most of the world. Um, in terms of Mysore. Some of it I really enjoy. I love the the organic community at the time around the practice and around the shala. Um, some aspects of the what I would call the uh, cultization, maybe a little bit. So um, even at that time, you felt it quite yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. People would like bow and kiss Guruji's feet, and uh, so you were never into that. You weren't. You weren't a kisser. No, I right. well. Yeah. Eventually, you kind of, especially being that young and yeah, that, yeah, you know, young. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. influenceable, yeah, you're yeah. like, okay, this is what's to be done and right. then I'll, I'll do it. Mm. But I remember having some reservations. Um, and when I went back my second time, which was, I think, maybe 2001, I kind of like had to make a deal with myself. And, and I remember using the analogy of the body. Okay, my body takes when I eat, it takes what it needs and it shoots out the rest. So I'm going to go there and focus on what nourishes me. And then the rest, the I'm not going to really involve myself mm. in that. So I remember already I had to do a little bit of a gymnastic. Right. Mental uh, gymnastics yeah, too. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And I, but I knew I really liked the practice and yeah. I really liked the energy. Yeah, and, and even Mysore looking back in retrospect was a very precious time and uh, yeah, yeah especially when you're in that old shala i think you know when there are only kind of a few people 12 people at a time in the room yeah right, that yeah, yeah it would exactly. have been a very different thing you know obviously to now to people's knowledge of the new shala which i haven't been to what we called the new shala in gokulam was even a very different thing to what you exactly. experienced at that exactly. time so yeah, yeah, i mean yeah. and what did you enjoy about it i suppose you were were you actually still being taught by Bisabi joyce at that time or, or was he a little bit yeah yeah for sure yeah, right for sure. so was he was always... still he was still helping and adjusting and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. doing yeah. most of the 
work. Sharat was always there and helping and assisting also. Uh, the first time Manju was actually also there oh, and teaching. Interesting, right? Yeah, right. which was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I have lots of whatever memories and episodes of i don't know guruji standing literally standing on my knees in Banakonasana, <laughs> and i thought everything was going to break and i was like okay it didn't and breathing you're a lucky and, one then yeah exactly I mean, for other people it hasn't gone you know, exactly. so, so well right? exactly but did you, you had reservations about it, you know the, the teaching methods or I mean, what did you like and what didn't didn't you like perhaps is, it would be a good question um you mentioned the cultization uh, if we can use that yeah word. yeah right. sure um, no so i i definitely there was every time i would go to mysore i had a what i would call a roadblock you know a posture that i would be uh challenged by mm. and uh, the very quickly guruji would sort of like effortlessly put me in there or make help me so i could feel there was something in his way of connecting with the bodies and adjusting and assisting that was very special hmm. um yeah in terms of what i didn't like so much was the 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 almost more how the community mm. would would um um organize themselves around guruji and and uh, idolize Guruji, that was one, and then two, uh, that there was not quite too much, but a sense of a little bit of elitism, and you know, right. oh, I'm doing this the series. Older students, or yeah, yeah you're more advanced students. Exactly, right. okay. so it felt more, you know, yoga is about releasing the clutches of the ego, and so it felt part of the the way that the system was taught was actually strengthening those bonds so right. that's one thing yeah, i was like yeah. okay i'm i'm gonna do it in my own way I mm. guess. Uh, and you mentioned teaching starting teaching in dc in washington dc yeah um where did you progress since then i mean because also i mean in france ashtanga was a slow burner i mean it's you know um, ah, yeah. i don't know whether it's Still due to the, kind of the natural anarchic nature of the people or you know uh, they don't like to follow the rules so much you know yeah. or the systems um is that correct anyone um we you know we find that ashtanga only in recent years has become mm. slightly more popular in france but yeah. you know I mean, even in paris i remember trying to go and look for it in the early yeah. 2000s and there really wasn't even a mysore i think yeah. running yeah. at all yeah. there yeah. You know, yeah. there is yeah. now a couple of mysore programs and so yeah. how's your teaching evolved in france obviously you're well known in france now as a one of the more senior Ashtanga teachers. Um, were you teaching in France? And, and yeah, not really. Uh, um, I mean, I was. I lived in the U.S. for about ten years, and so I was teaching in D.C. and then eventually I moved to San Francisco, Santa Barbara, right. um, living and teaching Mysore there, um, and then coming to Bali and uh, opening up our different centers, mm. but so in France I would go more, and over the years I develop some friendships with you know ashtanga teachers along the way and then go do workshops and or trainings or uh that kind of stuff there right um yeah why do you think it's not it's been slow to be received in france compared to many other countries all right compared to finland honestly honestly because i would say one because the weather's too nice yeah and then two, because they have a different kind of yoga in France, it's called l'apéro. <laughs> and so uh, it's just the culture, yeah, you know, yeah. and I notice it's not just France, but like the southern countries, Italy and Spain, have a, 
yeah. slightly different yeah, yeah. work I mean, ethic that made the Mysore yeah. a little bit slower to catch on. So I think what you're referring to is the the trend of the aperitif and the yeah, right. So what he says is lapero, the the aperitif, the trend of taking the uh, you know, and it's very pleasant. You know, there's a little ton of tapas, little you know, a little exactly. bit of food in the evenings, a little drink. Um, yeah, I mean, I always said that about Turkey when I was teaching in Istanbul a lot. Is that you know, basically life was too good there. That you know, yeah. there's too much fun to be had. Yeah. So why would you get up early in the morning and exactly. do something when you can have such a nice evening yeah. with your friends and a couple of drinks? Um, nevertheless, though, I'd say that France has still been slower than say Spain or Italy. Mm. That have really, I mean, maybe because of the uh, the politics around those countries that you know has you know kind of made the people take take Ashtang, take Ashtanga maybe a little yeah. bit stronger than, than yeah. I find. Yeah, maybe. And also, I mean, I think in what I see uh, in France is people, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. There's a, they work, you know, the work hours are quite demanding, mm. the family time. And so people have only so much time and energy. And um, um, yeah, it's not always easy to navigate that everything in somebody's life basically mm, mm. Um, yeah and in terms of your teaching methods i suppose when you first started teaching in in dc and then in you know san francisco you were probably teaching literally like you were taught in my school because you know as all teachers do yeah. at the start because we know you know you know that's how we were taught and you know yeah and you start to just kind of regurgitate that method and then obviously over the years you know you see how things work or how things don't work in aspects of you know translation in terms of western students practicing with a daily you know they're not yoga students full-time they're, they're daily daily people with their own lives and the meth method you learn in Mysore where you're standing on someone's knees maybe won't work for someone else who actually wants their knees to work for yeah <laughs> or you know it's a you know as an office worker who's sitting 10 hours you know a day in the chair and wants to do something mm. in the morning for themselves so I mean to that end I suppose it's a long-winded way of saying how how have you can you tell me a little bit how your teaching has evolved over the years? Yeah. yeah. I mean, one thing that was quite pivotal for me, well, first, before I started Ashtanga, I had an uh, injured knee. Right. And, and so the yoga practice, I could always feel that in practice, but I could also feel that it was helping a lot right. if approached in the right way. So Ashtanga for me was always very therapeutic. That's one. And also, I think around 2007, I started to do um, massage uh, schools and body work. So in the end, I got maybe, I don't know, 2,000 hours of body work training in different right. modalities. Mm -hmm. And that really started to inform and influence not just my view of how I would connect and touch the body, but also uh, approach uh, yeah. the practice. Yeah. Okay. And um, so more from a holistic uh, perspective, what I would call sustainable Ashtanga yeah. or functional Ashtanga, uh, where it, we integrate the practice long-term in the life of the person rather than trying to format the person to fit the practice. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's the original way it was approached as person-centered, obviously. Exactly. As more people came on the scene, the, you know, the, the logistics changed mm. the approach to Ashtanga, which was, uh, you know, the reason why I started the podcast and the, uh, the interviews in the first place to show that when the original Western students went there, they got different practices depending on their, yeah. you know, their aptitude, their ability, their age, et cetera, et yeah, cetera. They were taught, yeah, they were taught differently. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and obviously more recently because of the numbers, there's nothing to be done apart from give one standardized system because 
there's too many people. Yeah, uh, I don't think indeed. that ever, ever would have been the way had it stuck and stayed the same. I think you would see Shabbat teaching probably in a slightly more, and even now, you know, you see some mm. discrepancies between the way that people are taught there if they're known to, mm. to uh, the Tavi Dois or Shabbat, yeah, posthumously, yeah, um, it changes, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about how you treat your knees. You said it had healed your knees um, and it helped your knee. I mean, it doesn't sound like the the adjustment from Batabi Joyce would have would have helped that. I mean, um, how did you? You know, can you? I mean, for a lot of people that that suffer, and it's the first injury that really people get. And I got the knee problem, and I have spoken quite outspokenly that I had, did have arthroscopies. I had two mm. two um, knee surgeries, one left and one right. Yeah. Um, both knees went in the early years through just being stupid and over pushing myself. Mm. Um, uh, many people I know have also suffered uh, some problem with the knees. Maybe it's not diagnosed. Maybe they know that it's a tear of the uh, meniscus. Um, and, uh, you know, I, for everyone out there who's wanting to ask that question, I mean, what, what would you recommend and how did it help your knees? Okay, so one, I would say the most important is let go of an agenda of going anywhere and as in achieving a posture completely you know right. it can be adapted to the needs of the person and where the person is at that particular time and or completing series so really parking one's ambition aside i would say in on a symbolic level i would say that's what the knees represent is the the potential tension and conflict between where my mind wants to go and the reality of where my body's at right yeah. so symbolically the, the yep. knees are taking you forward or not or, exactly you know, or wish to run forward when exactly. really you should maybe yeah maybe walk a bit slower exactly um, and right. then slow down listen to the breath and then just functionally the knee joint is in between the foot and ankle joint mm. and the hip joint so mm -hmm. it would be wake up the foot what i call uh, padabandas uh, mm. and and find support from the arches, from the corners of the feet and all that. And the second part would be um, work a little bit more mobility, not necessarily flexibility, but mobility around the hips. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, the, the obvious one, I think, is that, you know, we don't have flexibility in the hips. I mean, the, the practice was structured for a different body at a different time. Yeah. It's translated to a Caucasian, you know, Western body, you know, in a very different, um, you know, uh, sedentary style of life. Mm. We don't yeah. have the hip opening and then the lesser joint, the weaker joint, the knee takes the lack of opening in the hip because exactly. you can't crank the hip and then the way that you can crank the knee, it's exactly. a bigger joint, doesn't move. Yeah. Therefore, you get immediately the shoving the knee in and, uh, and you know, like, and then, you know, you hear that pop, that sickening, uh, that 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 noise and and then that's it you know curtains for uh, for your lotus or you know yeah. as, as I was lucky I did have operations but then they were when I was young when I was mm. in my early twenties and they yeah. you know I have to say I'm not a massive fan of allopathic medicine in all respects but those particular operations for me yeah uh, did seem to um, yeah you to know, work to work which um mm. but I mean now I wouldn't have one and I would try and uh, do other um therapeutic uh, modalities around the yoga. Do you have any suggestions around, you know, people that do have a particular knee? Uh, they know I mean, they're you know. In the end, in the end, it's also, okay, Lotus is great, but no Lotus is great too. Mm -hmm. you know, so. What about, I mean, I see this all the time and it really annoys me. People are sitting there like this and they're, you know, in, in, in marriage house on a B or D. Yeah. Um, what do you think yeah. about this? I think it's an idea as an hip opener is okay, but I would do it more laying flat on the ground. Right. Because right. that way the spine can be straight and it's going to target the hip a lot more. Yeah. Uh, rather yeah. than doing it sitting with a rounded back. Yeah. And also there's a, an ability to moderate that pressure on the knee. Yeah. Whereas yeah. what I see there is a, 
they're also a danger to the knee, you see, because it's, yeah, you know, the be. knees in the air, right? But doing be. on the ground, I can see that you can actually, yeah. you're, not, you're not using gravity, so you have know, exactly. stability. To yeah. more, and so. then to always be active, so you can use your hands to create some traction, and at the same time, resist with the leg and push forward. And so that way, the muscles that I'm trying to open are active rather than passively. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So you've got an active, forced, yeah, yeah, an active sense of stretch. I mean, with all this talk, and I know that you're, um, you do incorporate other modalities into the way you teach Ashtanga. Yeah. Would you view yourself as a traditional teacher? And what does the what does the word traditional mean for you? Yeah, no. By this Ashtanga? point, by yeah. this point, I would say it's more. I'm more using Ashtanga to teach yoga. Yeah. And I'm looking more in the the all the dimensions of the person not just what the body can do so for me a good yoga practice for example in this time of covid or pandemic was really about how to ground calm and center oneself uh but that would incorporate okay physical practices for the body but also centering for the heart calming clarity for the mind mm. uh, so trying to approach it from a bigger and global perspective rather mm. than just the physical asana level. Right. What about the sequences? I mean, how about the you know, preserving the entirety of the sequences? A lot of people really seem to, I mean, you know, I get a lot of pushback actually from, um, you know, suggesting other possibilities around that. And they say, well, that's not, that's not Ashtanga anymore. You know, if you're not using um, a recent one of someone, maybe, maybe you know who you are, you say, well, you, you know, if you're not using butter, you're not making risotto. And I said, well, you know, look, what you're quibbling about is just different. You know, I'm still making the same risotto. We're just talking about different uh, brands of butter here. You know, well, that doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. um, essentially, you're, if you're teaching Ashtanga yoga with an emphasis on placing the posture and the, uh, with the breath, then you're building up the same system as was was taught in Mysore from, from the get-go. And Krishnamacharya's Vinyasa yoga comes from sure. this special, this nyasa, this special placement of mm -hmm. of the body and the breath. What, but what do you think about the particular sticking to the particular sequences and and the you know um, people are quite litigious about the counting, <laughs> about the importance of the vinyasa count in there. Yeah, so I think I think it's a little bit the same story of somebody has an insight, maybe a aesthetic or mystical insight, and then that people around it turn it into religion. Um, and become a little bit dogmatic. And I think that also really reflects on our Western mindsets rather than yogic view and perspective, which is very broad, very wide, sometimes completely opposite, but can be appropriate for different time or different places. Um, so in terms of the series, first to remember that Ashtanga was originally designed for young boys and that it's great practice, but it may not be great for everybody, especially people who are not so young anymore or who are busy, uh, or even most people who do yoga now are actually women. So it can be adapted there. And, um, and also that traditional Ashtanga is designed around what was four sequences and now been turned into six. And ideally the vision would be that Eventually, somebody would do primary series on one day, second series, a second, third, the third, and so forth. So that over a seven-day week with one day of rest, it would be a wide variety yeah. of movement. Mm -hmm. yeah? And I think that's, for example, what Matthew Sweeney trying to recreate by adapting the series uh, so that making them a little bit more accessible and it, with its own flavor, mm -hmm. but so that 
there's a little bit, um, it's like a good diet, mm. a variety on every day. And it's the whole variety that makes something that is holistic and mm. uh, healthy. Um, on the perspective of the body, doing the same thing over and over and over, most people you know, practice primary series, 80%, yeah. I would yeah. say. And maybe you add 15 more percent adding second series. But so doing the same thing, especially in Ashtanga, there's not really um, a lot of specificity around alignment and body mechanics and all this. And I would say doing the same thing for a long time uh, is not particularly mm. healthy for the body, mm -hmm. actually. So variety, I would say, and adapting the practice in that level, I would say, makes quite a bit of sense. Mm. Absolutely, uh, to my mind as well. How do you advise students to adapt it then or, or do more if they haven't got ne the necessary back bending or leg behind the head, etc., for intermediate series? Um, and, you know, and the range of accessibility to postures obviously goes down. Um, and do you, you know, how, how does that uh, fructify? Mm. How does that develop in your own teaching so they're not just stuck jumping forward and forward, folding again and again and again? And that's yoga for them, which, you know, which to my mind as well seems just crazy when there's, there's other possibilities of mm. movement out there to just be stuck to such a, a narrow window if one is, you know, not able to access those later postures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for one, accounting for body type, like for example, here, the Indonesian style of bodies. Uh, very open hips, but a little bit more challenging sometimes in back bends or for legs behind the head kind of movements. Right. Um, so account for this rather than forcing the person to to try to get into that pose and eventually maybe later getting into hip replacement or that kind of problem because it happens. Um, adapting maybe instead doing a split and. Um, pigeon prep or something like this, which would allow the body to move in that direction, but always listening and respecting what the body can do rather than pushing through and force. Um, and same for, for example, back bends or drop backs. Um, okay. Somebody could work on another scale, for example, handstand, why right. not? Mm. And that it requires a bit of strength, a bit of practice, a lot of sensitivity and finesse and that could be a, a gateway for them to be ready and have enough control to start exploring second mm, series mm, mm. Yeah. yeah yeah but some people was i suppose would say that the meditational aspect is gone that now you're not following i mean you know and again this is yeah from comments i've received myself from social media generally is that you know once you split up the sequence and, and start to make it more therapeutic and more body-based and more individuated in terms of you know, suiting a particular body type, it becomes a physical thing. It becomes more like a workout and it's lost its meditational quality where you simply follow the count and follow the postures and, you know, you don't have to. And it's one time, you know, we say we don't have to think, which is great, you know, in a world where we're increasingly uh, bombarded with choices all the time. At this point in the practice, we just do it. We don't have to think. We get into a different zone in our head. And suddenly now we have teachers like us, um, you know, who are just uh, complicating this, this vision again and trying to say, well, let's make it more therapeutic for you, which is, you know, you can see where we're coming from. But on the other hand, I'll argue, you know, as I often do in terms of being a devil's advocate, that, you know, what we're taking out is a meditational quality, perhaps, that, uh, you know, the, the, that is the essence of the practice. What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? How, do you preserve, um, how would you preserve that or can you preserve the two things? I mean, I would say in the bigger picture of yoga, 
body-centered practice, which we would call asana, is yoga level one. And it doesn't really matter how meditative, it's still on the surface uh, compared to, for example, stillness meditation is still uh, quite surface. I'm, nobody is going to get into a samadhi level of meditation while practicing asana. Um, and I think it's, it's a fantastic tool for the body. It's a fantastic tool to start centering the mind. There's also a pranayama element with the connection with the breath, mm -hmm. uh, bandhas and mudras. So it's a really good primer. Um, but again, it was developed for young uh, teenagers. And so have them spent and release a lot of energy so that it could just sit still and maybe listen to what the teacher had to say or do other kind of practices. But so I would ideally, I would say that a practice should include 20% minimum, 30% in the time of uh, meditative, contemplative, uh, non-asana uh, practice for me. Otherwise, is what I would call, okay, an asana practice rather than a yoga practice. Right, yeah. And so it could be meditation, it could be chanting, it can be pranayama, um, but basically the whole thing of asanas is so that the person could sit still for a comfortable period of time and actually turn within, inward, and go deeper on mm. that level. So you never found any other teaching element in the Ashtanga you learned with Patabi Joyce in Mysore, you know, because... Again, I mean, recently I've been in discussions with different people who said, well, you know, that Ashtanga Yoga is a full, complete system that they that the Joyce's were teaching other, you know, other limbs in that. So that you know, Sirachi is always emphasizing Yama Niyama following these principles. There's Pranayama, there's talk of Pranayama, there, you know, that there's other elements. And, you know, and then there is the claim that the Ashtanga Yoga, the Asana, is the hub and that everything uh, can be affixed to this hub, all the limbs can be affixed to a mm. kind of embodied practice, which is, you know, potentially an embodied state of meditation. But your suggestion, or I think what you're saying is that, you know, it's really a primer or a gateway. Mm. And it can, you know, the asana practice can only ever be a gateway that you'll mm. only, you only ever get so far with, with asana practice alone. Right? Yeah, that right? that's what I would say. Yeah. Okay, so on the on the traditional level, whether it's looking at the Hatha Yoga Pradipika or even the Yoga Sutras in the in the development of the eight limbs, asana would be yoga level one. Yeah, basically centering the body, and then comes pranayama, uh, cultivating, developing energy, and then would come in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, mudra or bandhas and mudras and eventually getting toward meditation so it's kind of like designed as a system to go deeper and deeper um and at some point the we let go of the the material side of the body to try not necessarily to dismiss it but just to explore and rebalance the other um, dimensions of who we are. We are not just bodies. We're not just machines. And um, the risk, in my opinion, of, of centering the yoga practice only around asana, and especially only in, in Ashtanga, is that um, it becomes a little bit too intense, maybe, and eventually will lead to, at the worst level, I would say, injury. Or um, it could be uh, a sense of dryness because of all this fire 
of the tapas, yeah, the physical tapas, literally dryness in the joints that become creaky and crackly, mm. and or even dryness in um, one, how one approaches life, basically. Right. And so, do you think the system could be, you know, when it's stuck to it in a kind of litigious or rigid way, it can it can be slightly kind of too too rigid and 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 life denying. Yeah, and and I like to to look at tradition and look at texts. And for example, um, in even from Krishnamacharya, um, Desikachar would say that there are three stages of life or three intentions in yoga. First one being shristi, which is spiritual practice in which ashtanga falls no compromise, full intensity, full on. And then, but that works you know, for a certain time or certain people, then when people become householders, the main intention would be stiti, as in samastiti, mm. so support. And so the yoga is there to support my life so that I feel better in whatever I'm doing. And the third intention would be uh, chikitsa or therapy, mm-hmm. um, which could work also for uh, an elder uh, stage of life and mm-hmm. adapting to practice. Mm-hmm. So I say keeping the context is mm-hmm. very important. What about the idea that Hatha Yoga is, I mean, when we talk about Svatmarama's uh, Pradipika, that you also find there the, uh, the the tradition of Hatha Yoga, which is a mudra-based approach where you've got a static form of asana, uh, you have the breathing, and then you have a bandha, um, and this is what's called mudra in um, medieval uh, Hatha Yoga, as it, as it becomes known. Um, what about the energetic aspect of that as a as a purification? Is there any any significance in the postures themselves as as a kind of energetic tool, or or is it simply a, a more physical therapy you're suggesting? And then you move on to the kind of Raja Yoga, the Yoga of Meditation. Mm. So traditionally, in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, uh, Swatmarama sees it as a stepladder toward mm. Raja Yoga because by then already people having hard time going in deep states of meditation. Um, in terms of the energy, I would say, I would say that what we do with the physical body is a little bit like a cup is the container. Yeah. And so first make sure that the container doesn't leak. Yeah. So that it's sealed and that it's strong and that it's healthy enough. Yeah. And then eventually through pranayama, or it could be, it could be, um, Bandas, it could be different flavors that we can add into our Shtanga practice, for example, is what do I put as a content inside that cup? Mm, mm. And uh, so in regards to the yoga of energy or Kundalini um, uh, from the Hatha Yoga Pradipika or the Hatha Yoga style, um, it's a very clear map in my opinion, okay, first asana, when the asanas are comfortable, spend a little bit more time in pranayama um, and cultivating a sense of finesse and sensitivity from the connection with the breath. And then from this, placing uh, this connection in different spots that we would call bandhas and eventually a um, flavor, what we would call a rasa, starts to emerge that can be more on the level of Psychoenergetic, halfway mm-hmm. between the mind and the body. Right, right, yeah. right. And I know you've also done a lot of um, work on yoga as a therapy itself. In which case, 
I've heard you talk about uh, fascia, the muscle fascia, a great deal. I'm kind of intrigued about, you know, your approach to using muscle fascia as a, as a teaching modality. Okay. Um, so I guess what I do is I'm trying to combine or reconcile the two main polarities of us as humans. And one is we, especially in modern yoga, we use the body quite a bit. Mm. Yeah. So having some basis in anatomy and mostly as a basis to explore and discover uh, this vehicle, this house that we live in and learn a little bit more about ourselves on that level. But also I think the big factor is we're not just bodies. We're not just mechanics. We also have a mind, feelings, beliefs that's going to influence how we use our body. And so in this regard, yogic philosophy provides a very useful context and background. So what I'm trying to do as a yoga teacher is to bring the two together. And so really um, exploring the body in terms of finding its philosophy, but also learning the anatomy of the mind. Yeah, the two kind of mingling together. So, for example, fascia is quite fashionable these days, is the biggest organ in our body, mm. is um, very global, and it's one organ connecting everything. So it can help us on a perception level reconnect with a sense of globality, reconnect with a sense of unity mm, inside mm. our practice. That's one. But also I think it's very interesting to link it to the philosophy that would be Tantra, yeah, because Tantra would be a weaving or tapestry which connects everything in our life mm, into mm. a possibility to awaken. Yeah. yeah, and so the two coming together. Uh, so fascia is the tan, the thread that connects everything. Exactly. Can you, I mean, it's a very um kind of abstract and esoteric though. And can you give any practical examples of how you might work? Because as you say, I mean, muscle fascia now is is the new thing. Um, yeah. it's very popular. It's, it's kind of buzzword. Can you kind of give any wet our appetite as to how we might work with fascia in the practice? Yeah. So one great tool um, that can help is what I would call myofascial release. And that can be done with different shape or sizes balls, as right. like a tennis ball mm. or rubber ball or even bigger, bigger ball to start to uh, compress the on the level of fascia. When tissue is tight for a long time, it becomes a little bit mated yeah. and dehydrated. Right. Yeah? And very uh, little amount of stretching is going to make a difference on that particular uh, area when the tissue is in that state. So having an external tool that can provide uh, pressure, feedback mm -hmm. to open those fibers can be really useful mm -hmm. uh, as a great complement to a regular yoga practice. Right. So that would be one. Mm. Um, so that's what I would call working on in fascia on the structural level. Mm. But fascia is also a tissue of information. It's made from basically liquid crystals, very much like what our screens are made of. Yeah, And it would be if the brain would be the uh, central processing unit of our body, of our human computer, the fascia would be the external hard drive. So there's a lot of information that is stored there and that we can access from softer practices. Um, I would say maybe like myofascial yin, 
and really going more into the sensitivity and the tuning in. And if we hold a posture kind of also traditionally, like what people would do uh, in middle ages and, you know, the background from yoga being tapas, people would hold a pose for about 12 years. Yeah. And uh, so we're a long way from that. Um, but even just holding one pose for five minutes. Yeah. yeah? And then, instead of trying to stretch into it, it would be noticing where the tension build up and where can I let go? Where can I relax to sit, to make it a little bit more of an asana in the particular mm-hmm. posture, um, to sit in there mm-hmm. and become a little bit more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if I'm just pulling and stretching, it's a little bit like moving the furniture around, but not really necessarily clearing space. Mm. So um, on to that end, would you always advise people to stay longer in the postures in Ashtanga Yoga than five breaths? Not, not, not right. always, right. but I would say an analogy that I use would be like bringing our car to a mechanic for checkup. Mm. Yeah. So in Ashtanga, let's say primary series is 64 asanas. So it would be 64 points to check up. Right. And as you know, I go through each pose, each corner, if it's fine, then five breath is okay. And then when I find, Mm -hmm. oh, here, there is something, there is some tension, there is some imbalance, uh, uh, then spending more time Mm -hmm. there, I would say, yeah, for sure. 10, 12, 15 breath. Yeah. I mean, as as an aside, I think originally, I mean, I don't know whether it was still the case when you were, when you first encountered uh, Darby Joyce in Mysore, but I think it was eight eight or 10 breaths that people were doing in the postures, but then it got shaved down to five because obviously, uh, you know, more people and, and less time, uh, right? Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, in terms of that microfascial release, then um, we don't necessarily need to spend longer, but just uh, uh, use different practices as well. Use the balls and, and and other techniques. Trigger points, perhaps you. you yeah. You, so the yeah. ball is basically like uh, like trigger point therapy, but self self yeah. massage so yeah. you can you you're on the acting and the receiving end of that yeah and you don't need to spend a lot of money and more time yeah, to yeah, get yeah. a massage yeah. to work yeah. with a therapist which can also be very very and you useful. can do it every day you, and you, you can, can really do every to. day yeah, yeah. no exactly. i have i have the balls and I, I use them a great deal um you mentioned a couple of times about heating and drying aspects of the practice that they can dry you out the, you know the tissue becomes dehydrated um yes i mean i've had this experience myself in my younger years and i definitely have a lot of time for this this kind of question i mean uh, did you notice that in your own practice and, and and do you notice that much in other people's and how if people are practicing I mean, you know because i see it a lot practicing quite hard you know they're very into the the, the physical practice of ashtanga mm. and you know can become quite depleted um mm. and, you know perhaps uh, as you say like uh, even rather emotionally rigid around the system mm. um you know, have you got any advice uh, for for kind of freeing this? And certainly, you know, on a physical and an emotional level, when the body can also become rather, you know, dry and, and mm. overheated. Yeah, um, sure. I would just um, look at, for example, the approach from Ayurveda, which is a sister science of yoga, which is all about first. Um, and understanding that we all have different constitutions, which means different needs, but also different tendencies and ways to aggravate. And for one, most people attracted to Ashtanga are usually going to have a strong element of what we call the Pitta type, which is the fire. And so fire wants more oil uh, to find that intensity and live life passionately and to the fullest. That would be the 
the uh, the stereotype of the pita mm-hmm. style. But basically, too much fire is when it gets out of control, just burns everything. Yeah, and so, and so the the questions uh, would be: Okay, how can I do this in a way that would be a bit more balancing, adding a little bit more earthy or watery elements uh, to ground that fire? Mm. If I'm on the side of being already quite active, dynamic, blah blah blah. Um, so I would say learning to find the yin in Ashtanga, trying instead, especially for Pita people, instead of making it stronger and, and thriving on that intensity, how to make it softer and lighter, more connected to the breath, the subtle sensation of the bandhas, the meditative quality of the drishtis, uh, bringing the practice on the inside rather than pushing through on the physical external level mm, mm-hmm. uh, yeah and same so people being a bit more vata uh usually airy and quite smart intellectual people it's actually it's great that they use their body and that the the intensity that ashtanga requires is great for that but they have a tendency to go through things very fast yeah, so for a vata person would be try to slow down, try to mm-hmm. feel your way through the pose, try to take time. No? Yeah. Um, and then the ideal, actually, uh, constitution type for shtanga would be what we call kapha, which would be very... But they're never going to do it. it well, just... that depends, but which would be more uh, easygoing yeah. and maybe a bit lazy kind of people. But so to understand that each type would have a uh, at the very best a different style of yoga practice mm-hmm. and at the very mm-hmm. least as an adaptation a way of moderating it so that it's a little bit more balanced mm. i suppose this leads me on to another question about how how your style of teaching relates to the dynamic between student and teacher so i mean what you're talking about is a very difficult thing to kind of in, you know engage people into in a certain manner so they find these things out themselves rather than telling them, well, you need to slow down or you need to speed up, right? You know, which is challenging. I mean, how? Um, I suppose I'd like to know a little bit more about how, how you relate to the dynamic of a pedagogy, of, you know, of you know, instruction as a teacher and how much you let the student take the, take the reins. And, you know, I mean, for, for me, I was always very much, you know, I need to kind of go through the journey. It would be nice to, to say to people, you don't need to do those things. And I've done them already and they don't, kind of don't work. But mm. often the student really just needs to go through it themselves, right? And, you know, if they're stubborn like me, just figure it out and find it out through a bitter experience, let's say. Um, you know, now how do you envisage the relationship uh, between student and teacher? Are you, you're, you're kind of a more authoritative teacher or do you let people do their own thing and, and, and figure it out themselves? No, I guess I guess definitely uh, not on the uh, authority side of teaching, um, more on this level of support. I think basically life is challenging enough as it is, especially in the last few years. And so is how to use the practice uh, to support and nourish. And so as a teacher, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, also for me is, as I said, it's on a holistic level. It's about as much of physical health, but also um, emotional health, mental health and community. So I try to, you know, basically the how somebody's going to practice on their yoga mat is how they're going to do anything in their life. Mm. Yeah, and so 
I'm just using where people are getting stuck, whether on the physical mat or in terms of their mind, what their expectations and their, and then trying to bring out a different perspective that maybe could work better for them. Mm. And in the end, um, I like to to think of people as being adult and so giving them as much responsibility um, and thinking through it and working through it. Um, you know, as teacher, I just find, I just feel I am maybe a little bit further on the journey, but I'm a student myself. Mm. And, um, and so I'm still learning and I'm still growing. And, and I really like the idea of, of doing that together. We can be, which is kind of the, philosophy of Mysore we're all doing this together each in our own journey and way and um, level basically Uh, but the idea is together which is Mm. uh, what our yoga center Ubuntu really means togetherness community Mm. that's what it's about Mm -hmm. Um, yes on a practical level do you I mean how directional are you do you are you a teacher who uh, gives posture by posture and then stops people at a certain place you can't progress or or do you kind of allow them to play the field and just kind of go with them as to as to you know how much do you allow them to lead the practice and how hands-on are you well you know in a metaphorical sense in terms of how much you tell them that you know you're doing this and your practice will be a certain way you know if you can't do Mary Charleston D like that then you can't go any further mm. um it, it depends which is also one of the gift of my soul mm. is that it's not a one answer fit for all Um, so it depends uh, where is the person at and how they approach the practice i would be more lenient uh, toward a beginner in the beginning of the practice and as people progress i also like to challenge them a little bit more and stick to the formats if they can but if it's also if somebody works on a particular pose uh, for maybe a year or long, uh, you know, decent amount of time, mm-hmm. because there's always some things to learn about how do I meet my challenges? Mm. How do I deal with my limitations? Mm. And so there's some great value to learn there. But in the end, it's also respecting what the body can do. And mm-hmm. for s- certain times or certain people, maybe skipping a pose or adapting and modifying uh, is going to be the better option. So it's kind of dancing uh, with that and adapting accordingly, depending mm. if they come from a place of ego and wanting to push through it or if it's actually connected and felt through and quite intelligent. Uh, yeah. Do you see yourself as a, just an asset teacher or are you teaching something more than just asana? Um, no, the asana becomes uh, very secondary. Right. Uh, over the years. And so it's more about, yeah, as I said, uh, helping people have a practice uh, and showing up in a way that is going to support their life uh, in being more centered, more grounded, more connected, happier. Uh, whether somebody can put their foot behind the head or not, to me, doesn't really matter at this point. Mm, mm. Yeah. Unfortunately, it still matters to a lot of people. Uh, or, or, you know, yeah, uh, great. They, great. We still see that challenge in the world. I mean, what do, what do you think of? Uh, can all people do all postures? I mean, it's an often a question. You know, will I be able to put my foot behind my head one day? I mean, what, what's your perspective on this? Can all bodies, with enough effort and with enough determination, meet the challenges of at least primary or an intermediate series? Or do you think that certain bodies 
you know, hel- sustainably and holistically, as you've been mentioning that term, mm. will, you know, ought to, you know, be sceptical or, or at least uh, hold back in terms of pushing themselves to complete postures, which seem quite, uh, quite hard, you know, hard or, you know, mm. or even, you know, uncomfortable or even painful for, for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely would recommend staying away from pain. Uh, pain to me is a, uh, it's kind of like a road sign that says wrong way, wrong direction, or at the very least slow down in the body language. Um, so I would say, no, not every body is going to be able to do every posture, uh, but in the end, you know, well, zooming out a little bit and looking at it with the bigger picture, why do we do that? Why do we do yoga? Ultimately, it's probably because it makes us feel better. Yeah? And so I would stick more with the feeling. How do I feel when I finish my practice? I, I challenge myself. I work a little bit. It's a little bit like climbing a mountain early in the morning. And uh, eventually, because it's the same path and the same, so we learn the terrain, but we also start to see ourselves in a mirror and noticing how we change from day to day, from year to year, over time. And I think in that way, the practice can be very beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of, um, yeah, posture, and so, you know, eventually we all look for happiness. So the, the, the posture track, you know, trying to complete more and more asanas is what I call a little bit the train track of our train of thoughts. Mm. And so we keep riding in that direction on those rails and there's always going to be a train station ahead of us. Ah, when I can do this, I'll be happy. When I get there, I'll be satisfied. But the reality of it, that's the greatest trick of the ego. It never works like this. Mm. There's always another train station ahead of us so for me the yoga is actually uh learning how to derail the train Mm. you know how to get off of that track how to gradually and it's a process and it takes a bit of time but to stop looking uh from a goal orientation view rather to a process and feeling our way through and connecting with the little um step is not really the destination is the journey that matters mm, um, mm. Um, how would how would you encourage that in the student because I mean, it's very difficult to get from an aim oriented perspective which is the you know the one that we've been brought up in the one that we're conditioned in the one that we live in the world in to a process oriented perspective on, on life and on, on practice right yeah. i mean it, there are any you know kind of ways that you can you know kind of trick or, or moderate the minds guide the mind towards, yeah, towards sure, looking at things sure. differently? One would be to focus more on what I would call the internal element of the practice rather than the external. So really going into the breath and something I could recommend for this, I like to play and explore. So I would say practice with earplugs. It's going to amplify the sound of the breath and it's going to make uh, you feel like you're swimming in a sea, ocean, of breath and it's very powerful actually uh, so that could be one interesting yeah, and then yeah. the other one could be playing really going into bandhas and i know in ashtanga we uh we talk about three bandhas and there's a lot of word around bandhas but in the end uh maybe not so much understanding about what bandhas are and what they could do and on a very physical level i would say exploring the work of simon borg oliver which will talk about bandhas for each of the main joint complex mm-hmm. so there would be at least nine bandhas 
and that create the platform for more mudras, the energy to wake up in there, uh, or drishti and meditation. And for one could be, for example, practicing with um, covered eyes Blindfold. and blindfolded, yeah, 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 yeah. I would say is quite interesting. Um, yeah, some good tips there. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, so focusing on this side of the practice rather than the asana, mm-hmm. the container, mm-hmm. focus on the content that I'm putting in inside there. the container. Yeah, yeah. 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 And finally, you mentioned at the start your meditation that that was the starting point for your yoga journey. Yeah, um, and coming back to it later after having this kind of you know love affair with Ashtanga, now coming back to the meditation again. Yeah. How how are you um, structuring that meditation now? How do you incorporate in practice, or what kind of meditation do you use? Um, you'd like to say a little bit more about about meditation, how to relate that meditational practice to the asana form. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I mean, it depends. I'm not too too big with formats and rules, so I would say most important is to feel it. Uh, but I would say it's quite nice to start practice with a little bit of meditation, with a little bit of sitting. And so, one of the easiest ways just could be to watch and count the breath. Yeah. Uh, and connecting this with bandhas could be, for example, to breathe in along the front of the spine. So from the pelvic floor through the uh, belly button, the solar plexus, the heart, the back of the throat, the palate, and the crown of the head, and exhaling to release any tension that is felt along the way, uh, the face, the eyes, the ears, the jaw, the neck, the body, and releasing that. So that can be a very uh, interesting meditation that gives a nice overview of and reconnection with the body. It could also be more Vipassana style scanning. Um, But so I would say uh, starting or at the end part, the key would be saving a bit of time and energy because most in the reality of most people doing a full series, by the time they get or sometime a series and a half, by the time they get there, All we want to do is lay down in Shavasana and pass Mm. out because Mm. we are kind of dead and tired and fried. So I would say a little bit like from an Ayurvedic perspective, an ideal meal would be to still be a little bit hungry at the end of the meal. So keeping some time and energy so that I can sit a little bit after practice, which is what it's actually supposed to be and meant for and not just five or ten breaths. five minutes, 10 minutes. Mm. And this Mm. is where we can almost collect and harvest all the, um, the, the flavor, the flavor, the subtle energy from the, the physical practice that was done before. Right. Right. So I would say it can be very potent and powerful. Well, I also wanted to ask is what, you know, in the first place, does meditation mean for you? I mean, we know from Patanjali that, um, he, the definition, the famous one is Chitta Vritti Narodaha, you know, yoga is stopping the mind. I mean, how do you relate to meditation? Are you trying to stop all thoughts or are you, you mentioned the body scanning, so that, that sounds a little bit different, like you're trying to come into a more sensory uh, and aware yeah. embodied sense of yeah. Yeah, I mean, the there's a lot of um, how am I going to say uh, discussions, arguing around the niroda. Some would go for more controlling the thought, stopping the thought, the cessation of the thinking process. Uh, in the end, is is play of words, and I think I think it can be um, by focusing, for example, on the subtle sensations, being really 
present, eventually the manas, the thinking mind, if I stop feeding it stories and energy, will start to settle down and stop. And for example, in the eight limbs, the process would be three steps. So dharana, concentration, is to stabilize the 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 mind in his thinking faculty yeah? so that I can focus on something so that eventually the chatter stops. Yeah? And then eventually jhana is connecting with whatever object of my meditation so that the, the boundaries of the ego start to dissolve. And um, would be, it could be a very simple and beautiful meditation, for example, going back to the anatomy on skin. And first I feel this envelope around my body containing the body. And eventually with stillness and with softness in the breath, the mind, we can dissolve that boundary. Of course, it's still going to be only in the mind, but expand our sense of self so that it's not just limited to this thing, but also the whole universe um, uh, around me. And then eventually samadhi would be about stabilizing the buddhi or the intellect yeah and so it's deeper and deeper layers of meditation just like we do with asana it's a journey it's a process um the goal the how you know it's up to anyone i would say i'm afraid i'm gonna to have to bring it back to ground now and just ask you my two classic questions that i usually end these things with which is uh, one um on a, on a very superficial, silly level, can you give me a guilty pleasure? Uh, something you like outside yoga, something that you know you find enjoyable in daily life. Um, and secondly, um, just give me an inspiration, something that inspires you. Can be a person, a place, or a book, or anything else. All right. Um, a daily vice? No, how did you call it? Well, you could call it a vice. I wouldn't call it a vice necessarily. Like a, a guilty pleasure. We call a guilty it. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah. Don't, right. don't have to be guilty about it, but something, yeah. you know, something, no something, there, yeah, no something you there. enjoy. Yeah. I would go. I would go surfing. Right. Uh, I would say surfing. Um, which I mean, in the end, everything can be a form of yoga as long as I'm doing it with presence and mindfully. Um, so surfing is definitely a very, very challenging, right. and place, interesting yeah. yoga yeah, yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of inspiration, I would say, you know, in the end, most important, I would say with our yoga practice is that it doesn't stretch just the body, but also the heart. So use the yoga to be a bit more kind, self-loving, uh, and community oriented to nourish and support people around. Um, and one book that would come from this very, very profound, actually, in simple words. It would be something like Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind from T.D. Suzuki, Suzuki. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, which book. doesn't actually yeah. mention the word yoga, right. but is a beautiful way to approach one's yoga practice uh, and attitude toward yoga, I would mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, all that remains to be said is thank you for uh, coming over today. It's the first one that I've done in My person pleasure. after doing over probably 100 interviews. So I really enjoyed um, meeting up one-to-one -one with, uh, with with the interviewee. And um, thanks for coming around. It's My been pleasure. lovely to see you. Likewise. Thanks, Jamie. See you guys.